Good afternoon. You're listening to 90.7 FM, KALX. I'm Franklin, and this is Berkeley Rock. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, we'll be discussing current developments in the world of science. Also, we'll be joined by Professor Shepley Chen to talk about some of the oldest organisms on the planet. So stay tuned for all this, plus the world-famous question of the week, coming right up here on Berkeley Rocks. To Berkeley Rocks, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. How are you doing, Frank? Very good. Happy New Year, Happy Charles. New Year to you as well. So it's the first episode of Berkeley Rocks for the New Year. And uh, I hope it's going well for you this far. Pretty good so far. Yeah. <laughs> haven't done anything yet. Yeah, well, that's a good thing. Just taking it easy. That's, that's good. Luckily, the aliens haven't invaded yet because I was pretty sure this was going to be the year. Oh, really? Yeah. But, you know, we might just be prepared. All this, uh, all this warmongering that we're doing has, uh, built up high-tech arsenals for, uh, for our defense. Oh, oh, really? So we could fend off the aliens should they choose to invade. Right. And in terms, uh, there's actually a lot of developments going on in terms of, like, gear for the future soldier. Oh, really? So what, what can the future soldier hope to, uh, be expending on the battlefield? So the future soldier will probably be wearing some sort of, uh, armor suit that's biologically responsive, chemically responsive, so they'll ward you away from any biological or chemical agents. They also be wearing like special goggles that give them uh, insights, good vision uh, during the day as well as the night. Oh, so like night vision goggles. Yeah, but super advanced. So Ooh. See you very, very far. I'm just waiting for the goggles that can see into my mind. See into your mind. Yeah, that'd be cool. <laughs> hmm, clouded your future is. But uh, there's a lot of research going on, especially at uh, MIT, where they're working on you know, smart sensors for uh, you know body armor. Okay. One significant development is uh, the use of ceramics. You know, before a lot of equipment was made with metals, right. which were heavy, and actually they also uh, corrode over time. Right. So ceramics, it turns out, uh, are a lot stronger and more lightweight. Uh, so, for example, instead of using aluminum-based components, they can have something that's, uh, say, made from boron carbide, silicon nitride, or one of those hosts of different ceramics, which are stronger and lighter. Ooh, wow. So uh, that's that's certainly useful, I guess, for the... Uh Soldiers on the battlefield. Who right, have to they can a lot walk longer distances right. and uh, be able to ward off more bullets. <laughs> <laughs> like Superman. Yeah. Wow. So we should see this on uh, the fashion runways of Paris anytime soon? Yeah, that would be kind of nice. But most likely there will be a farce on your Aegis missiles or your Patriot. Uh. <laughs> okay, so if uh, people want to learn more about that. There's actually a very nice article written in um, last year's issue of Chemical and Engineering News. So, uh, quite a little fascinating development. Uh, so, do you like making stuff? I, I love stuff and making them, <laughs> like cake and yeah. other stuff that don't work. <laughs> <laughs> How about fossils? Fossils? Yes. No, I'm not in the appetite for fossils these days. Yeah, well, fossils uh, are quite interesting because uh, they give us a window into the past. Into the past? Yes. Well, you know, I, I never rely on my own data or anything that's <laughs> carbon dated, so... 
<laughs> well, the interesting thing about it is that uh, neither do scientists. No? No. Hey, that's smart. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, it, it turns out that uh, researchers who were, you might remember the Martian meteorite, right. where they thought they saw these fossilized life forms, mm-hmm. and even uh, canonical examples of ancient life forms mm-hmm. have come under closer scrutiny because they've said, well, this doesn't, it just resembles a prehistoric life form. It's not really one. Right. And so now researchers have shown that, in fact, it's quite easy just to construct things that look like little bacteria using a simple recipe of silica, carbonate, and barium. Wow. That's pretty easy then, huh? Yeah. And uh, it, it creates uh, things that look quite similar to uh, mm-hmm. uh, bacterial forms. And uh, basically, it, it just shows that you have to really be careful when you're looking at these things and saying this is ancient life. So they're saying that a lot of what we interpret as ancient life could be a misunderstood for uh, some microstructures of these. Uh, right, just uh, random these... salts precipitating. Right, inorganic materials. Right. So it certainly draws into question a lot of the previous findings, uh, especially uh, ones of like even the classic example of the Warawuna microfossil from Australia. Mm. Yeah. So this was interesting work that was carried out by geologist and crystallographer Juan Manuel Garcia Ruiz of the University of Granada in Spain. Okay, Charles, so have you paid your taxes? Uh, well, uh, I guess I will say yes, since we are on the record. <laughs> uh-huh. But you know that California has a shortfall in... Doesn't seem to have enough, right? Well, it's yeah, that's a big issue, yeah. Yeah, I guess uh, the that's, governor is helping us. That's what swept the governor into office. <laughs> but uh, I guess the damage has been done, and it turns out education is uh, one of the victims. Right, they basically had to cut a lot of programs and even uh, enrollment in a lot of places. Right, in fact, in uh, just at UC Berkeley here, there's been a 5% cut across all the departments. Mm-hmm. And this hits uh, salaries, which are 80% of their offering budgets right, at most. Right, right, right. And, and they've also had to raise tuition as well. Right. Huh. So uh, are, are people concerned about this? Obviously, they're concerned about it, but what are they going to do? They're very concerned, uh, especially for uh, undergraduate education, uh, where students are uh, vying to get into one of the spots here, but maybe they don't have the, the best quality of education because of all these cuts. Well, that's, that's certainly going to be an issue. And I think uh, even Cal has probably got it uh, a little better than a lot of places. Right. I mean, we, we have some private endowments as well. Sure. But uh, nevertheless, the, there is a problem, and uh, people are trying to figure out where to get the money. I say uh, selling lemonade on the corner. Selling lemonade? Yes, that's the key. The other victim is the uh, the California State University system. Right. Well, so, uh, yeah, it's a big it's a big crisis, and I think uh, I'm sure most people are aware of it. Um, hopefully, uh, we'll see some funding changes come mm-hmm. around soon. All right, and if anyone wants to know more, uh, they can go to the website of the UC President's Office or uh, the Public Affairs of uh, California State University. <laughs> All right, and uh, finally, uh, I guess if you're not building your endowment at the university, how about building your muscles? Building your muscles, just like the governator. Just like the governor. Hopefully, who will be building not only the craziness of the academic endowment, but also the muscles. It turns out, actually, that uh, blood cells can uh, take part in building muscles. Really? Yeah, and so this is uh, quite fascinating because for quite some time, people have wondered if blood stem cells can actually transform into different types of cells. You mean, are you talking about the stem cells in the bone marrows? Or? It's actually, actually actually blood stem cells. So Blood stem cells? I never heard of those. Yeah, so they're apparently stem cells that exist as in the blood. <laughs> Okay. But uh, previous reports had kind of claimed to show that these stem cells could transform into different tissues, say the mm-hmm. muscle or the brain. Mm-hmm. But people haven't really shown it conclusively until recently when Margaret Goodall of Bayer College of Medicine in Houston, Texas, and her colleagues published this in Nature Medicine. 
So what both groups did is they isolated these blood stem cells and um, put them in mice that had been uh, compromised and shown that these stem cells can actually uh, infiltrate the muscles and become muscle cells. Wow. Gee, so if someone steals my blood, they can clone me, huh? <laughs> or at least uh, become more muscular than you can possibly imagine. So uh, are they uh, suggesting some possible... Um regeneration of muscle or tissue with this uh, new finding? That's the interesting thing about it is that these things actually don't take place uh, very rapidly. Oh, okay. Uh, there's, there's actually a small fraction of it, so they'd actually right. need a little bit of, they say, help oh. uh, to get involved. You mean like a scaffold or... Yeah, to actually start uh, becoming muscle. Right. But they say, in principle, it's possible to do it. I see. Uh, so it's, again, very interesting work and uh, work that's published in the recent edition of Nature Medicine. And that's all for this week's look at current developments in the world of science. This is Berkeley Grox you're listening to here on KALX. In a few moments, we'll be joined by Professor Shepley Chen to talk about some of the oldest organisms on the planet, the blue-green algae. The theory of evolution suggests that the earliest forms of life were microbes, uh, much more primitive than the bacteria that we are more familiar with. These organisms have survived the ages and are abundantly present on the planet's surface. Some are even known to have commercial or health benefits. Well, joining us today on Berkeley Grox is Professor Shepley Chen. Uh, Professor Chen is a microbiologist who studies these organisms, uh, namely the blue-green algae. Professor Chen, thanks for joining us on Berkeley Grox today. Uh, perhaps you could tell us what exactly these blue-green algae are and your interest in working with them. The blue-green algae um, is also known as cyanobacterium, cyanobacteria or plural. They represent the oldest uh, microorganisms. They appear on Earth almost 4 billion years ago, well, about 3 billion years ago. They are so-called prokaryotes, meaning that the cell have no defined nucleus. Uh, The genetic material DNA is uh, in the cytoplasm in the cell and not uh, surrounded by a nuclear envelope. And the bacteria and the cyanobacteria all bring the blue-green algae all belong to the same kingdom, uh, same group of organisms. And they represent the uh, most primitive uh, form of life and also the, the among the first to appear on Earth. Uh, and now blue-green algae uh, differ from the bacteria in that they can photosynthesize. They can use uh, carbon dioxide water to manufacture food, such as carbohydrate or other organic material. Now, they interested from evolutionary point of view that uh, evolved uh, as a living form of cells uh, before others. Uh, and uh, being capable of photosynthesis, they provide oxygen uh, when they use water 
uh, and CO2 to, to, to manufacture food, the oxygen is evolved as a byproduct, O2. Uh, so the, the, that's how O2 came into being on Earth, and that will support, support all the life forms uh, subsequently. Uh, they rely on oxygen. Uh, when we respire, we have to use oxygen to burn food to provide energy and uh, other raw material uh, for building the cells. So, so it's important from the evolutionary point of view uh, that uh, they can photosynthesize the uh, self-sustaining cells, meaning they can live on a very simple raw material uh, such as water, CO2, mineral, and uh, uh, solar energy. And also they are a very tough form of life. Uh, they can live in a variety of environments, including hot spring, uh, and uh, they are fairly resistant to many chemical or, or high energy radiations. And uh, they live in some will be uh, living in the aquatic environment or marine environment, or some in uh, terrestrial that on the land, uh, on the land. Uh, and uh, some uh, the one peculiar blue-green algae, Nostoc also known as black moss. Uh, it's a nemesnoma. They are not really moss. Uh, they live in a seemingly inhospitable desert of many parts of the world, including China. So I have studied, I spent some time studying the Nostoc, N-O-S-T-O-C, that um, is uh, consumed by Chinese as uh, food or delicacy, and they also some believe that, uh, according to the folkloric medicine, that this no stock is not only uh, delicacy but also uh, healthy food. Uh, it can cleanse the uh, gut, uh, get rid of the fats and cholesterol, and reduce obesity. Uh, so uh, it, it, it's it's just uh, it's a folkloric medicine, and it's not a drug; it's a food. So it consumed in China for that reason, and China probably is the only country which gather and collect. Uh, collect and market this product uh, until recently. That, uh, that there's some interest in uh, growing them, artificially growing them, or farm in Japan and China. Uh, some um, researchers have attempted to try to grow them. Uh, one approach the Chinese used was to what I call the in-situ growth enhancement, that is, select the natural habitat or growing area of uh, North stock and then try to seed it densely and uh, irrigate fertilized necessary to in a way is trying to help nature do its things faster and more efficiently. Uh, they in nature they grow slowly. But the Chinese have limited success for a variety of reasons. Uh, so so far there's no good way of uh, artificially growing them. Some time ago I suggest to a Japanese company to to create the the artificial environment uh, suitable for no stock to grow. That includes the alkaline the soils uh, or media and uh, proper temperature, and they tend to grow in warm day, day time and the cool night. Uh, that kind of combination tend to, to favor uh, their growth. Uh, so combined with alkaline soil or media um, and the day-night fluctuation of temperature, we may be able to grow them and uh, try to grow all them on the artificial membrane or something so for easy of harvest. That has been uh, studied, uh, but up to now there is no commercial success yet. Uh, so the blooming algae, of course, Norfolk is just one of them. There are many species scattered in a wide variety of environments. But uh, it's uh, interesting from the uh, ecological and evolutionary perspective, but also from the applied microbiology perspective.
is uh, holds potential. So uh, some Japanese researchers are interested in knowing whether this has uh, antiviral or anti-tumor activities. But there has been claim that uh, this, at least on the animal, test animal like rats, they have shown some anti-tumor activity, but further research needs to be done. But it will be too early to claim that uh, it has such uh, pharmaceutical uh, effect. But uh, primarily it's a food or delicacy, and perhaps uh, with some healthy implications. But it's uh, folkloric uh, medicine, and uh, to to uh, claim that as a therapeutic agent, uh, we have to have a more rigorous uh, proof. So that uh, sums up uh, uh, my thrust of research in the past few years. And how many other species of these type of organisms are there out there? At least uh, several hundred species, uh, more frequently encountered, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think uh, we there may be more. I'm sure there are more. And you mentioned the possible health benefits of these algaes. Uh, how do they do it? Do they have high fiber content? The several species uh, have a large amount of uh, dietary, soluble dietary fibers. Uh, I see. Like a, a north top, there are three spe- edible species. Uh, for instance, the North Fork Community is one species that secretes extracellular material. That is, uh, it, it makes a gelatin-like substance and secretes out of the cells uh, and around the, the cell mass. Uh, and uh, so these are, are good sources of uh, dietary fiber. And dietary fiber in general believed to be a healthful ingredient. Some may be able to absorb uh, fat or cholesterol and excrete it out of the large intestine so that our human body would not absorb uh, those uh, anti-nutritional factors that are unhealthy. Excess amount of fat and that cholesterol would not be taken into our system. But I must say that some other food ingredients may also accomplish the same thing, not just the microalgae or bovine algae. Many other uh, things can do the same thing. Uh, you mentioned that these blue green algaes are harvested in China. Are they harvested in what kind of climate do they uh, proliferate? Uh, they found in the, the vast area of northwest China, such as Inner Mongolia, Xinjiang, and Gansu, and Ningxia. These are major producing areas. And the, uh, it would be a mistake to think that they grow profusely if you go to the field and all of a sudden you see ground covered with uh, dense uh, north stock. Uh, not so. Uh, when we have visited the habitats uh, several times, and, uh, you, you have to really look carefully. Any accessible area, easily accessible area, not so easily accessible area, there aren't that much uh, growth. Those people who are usually uh, farmers or ranchers, they would uh, collect them, and the, the method uh, they use was very, uh, not a very appropriate method. They use kind of rake, like a tool, to rake off the algae together with topsoil and the grasses, the ground cover, and then try to sort out the minute amount of algae and sell them. But uh, this would tend to destroy the topsoil and the Chinese government uh, about three years ago they banned the collection and the sales of non-stock in China. That's why um, the uh, end users are interested in the artificial cultivation or farming of uh, non-stock. Another approach was to go to Mongolia to collect uh, them to gather them. Uh, Mongolia also produced non-stock fragiliformi. That's the form I, the one I interested and that is an edible one but the mongols don't eat them and then don't collect them so there was a proposal made uh, to to train to 
send some Chinese uh, team <laughs> to gather or, or train Mongolians to gather in an ecologically friendly manner and then uh, ship to the users uh, or the consuming uh, part of the world, uh, like China or the Japanese has some interest also. So these are the things uh, we have been uh, thinking. But the SOA, it's fair to say that uh, there has been no commercial success yet. Uh, so if it's indeed uh, a, a promising food from the, um, the health science uh, perspective, I think we have to first solve uh, the supply uh, problem. How can we obtain such things uh, in an ecologically friendly manner and not to dis- destroy the topsoil? So the artificial cultivations or farming of uh, non-stop would appear to be a uh, right approach. And the Japanese are very good at the growing mushroom and stuff like that. Uh, there's no reason why they cannot eventually succeed uh, in uh, farming uh, non-stop. I think uh, many, uh, as we know more about this algae and the, what makes them tick in such an inhospitable environment, what are the physical and chemical conditions necessary for growth. If we can define those parameters, probably we can succeed in uh, growing them. And my suggestion is to try to grow them on some kind of artificial media, a membrane, and we can scrape off and harvest easily. When you collect in nature, you have to exhaustively wash them uh, because it's contaminated with sands and the grasses and uh, stuff like that, uh, and maybe even bacteria. So then uh, you lose lots of stuff, like soluble dietary fiber, uh, are washed away. So by growing on uh, some kind of artificial membrane surface, you probably can uh, harvest the uh, clean stuff uh, and uh, doesn't require exhaustive washing that uh, you lose uh, much of the material. Uh, you mentioned that these uh, black moths are photosynthetic, uh, that yeah. they can convert energy from the light of the sun. Are they somehow related to the chloroplasts that produce the chlorophylls? Yeah, that's a very interesting question, sir. The uh, Lynn Margulis uh, proposed that the, the chloroplast that you find in the eukaryotic cell, that is the cell with the well-defined organelles, uh, they, they have a cl- nucleus chloroplast. And actually the chloroplast uh, started as a algae, green algae or blue-green algae that sneak into uh, another cell and live it uh, happily ever after and then become capable of self-replicating. They have DNA also. So it's possible that uh, it started as, that, as such then then uh, some of them will become a endosymbiont. They live inside another cell in a mutually dependent uh, and beneficial manner. Yeah, it's entirely possible. In the mitochondria, the bacteria is a, uh, started as a bacteria. Bacteria sneak into another cell and become mitochondria, and then uh, microalgae sneak into another cell and become chloroplast. And the DNA of that whole cell become surrounded by form a membrane, uh, so you have a well-defined nucleus, uh, and so that's the, the start of the eukaryotic cell. Yeah, that theory has received considerable attention and uh, support. Some even went as far as to say that some bacteria with the flagella, that's the whip-like uh, structure, allow them to propel or move around in the liquid environment. Some of these cells, uh, bacteria with the flagella, would attach the cell and they become, uh, and so the whole cell become mobile. <laughs> Yeah, I guess we're uh, running a little bit out of time here. Uh, are there any last comments you'd like to add about these uh, blue-green algaes? Oh, algae. 
Now, the, the blooming algae actually is a quite unrelated to other type of algae as we know them. If you're using the layman's classification, there's the algae and the seaweed. Seaweed, we often refer to the marine form and the as larger form. You can see it with naked eyes. Uh, they, most of them are brown algae and red algae. One good example, uh, red algae, of course, is nori. Uh, oh, Japanese seaweed. Uh, and then the brown algae is uh, kombu. Uh, so, but and then the microalgae, there are many, usually referred to the single cells, single cellular algae, and the blooming algae is one of them, but it's the most distinct one in that sense that it's probably is closer to bacteria than other algae. And then there are other uh, algae like dinoflagellate, uh, green algae, single cell green algae, diatoms. Uh, diatoms are important because they, they are plankton components of plankton, and they're also uh, important food for marine animals. And there are a number of other smaller algae. Uh, dinoflagellate is known for causing red tide. Some species, uh, would, if the environment is conducive to their growth, they all of a sudden bloom and they grow such a huge quantity. And some of them secrete the toxin, neurotoxin, that would uh, cause the death of fish. Uh, and also many small algae tend to grow in the freshwater ponds. Uh, if the condition is good, they grow in such huge quantity, uh, they all bloom, and such that the carbon dioxide become limiting. There's not enough carbon dioxide support for the system. And as a result, they die in mass. And when they die, the bacteria, aerobic bacteria, start uh, acting on them and cause them to sprout. And then uh, when the bacteria, aerobic bacteria grow, they, they use up too much oxygen in water such that the fish cannot get water and then the fish may die and so-called eutrophication. Uh, initially, algae grow fast uh, and too fast they die and the aerobacteria start eating them. And, and it's because they use up the uh, oxygen dissolved water such that the fish may not be able to get enough oxygen. And then besides, the algae are dead and they cannot photosynthesize to recharge water with uh, O2. So it has a uh, very grave consequence, and the algae plays such an important role uh, in the ecological. And uh, thank you for joining us today, Dr. Okay. Shepley Chen. Okay, thank you. And we were just talking to Dr. Shepley Chen on the microbiology of blue-green algae. This is Berkeley Grox. You're listening to only here on 90.7 FM. In a few moments, find out what a leap year is. So stay tuned. Welcome back to Berkeley Grocks, and now here's the answer to last week's question of the week. What is a leap year? A leap year occurs when we gain an extra day in the year, namely February 29th. Anyone out there with that birthday? 
And we do this because the Earth cycle around the sun is actually closer to 365 and a quarter days rather than precisely 365 days. And to be even more precise, there's only 24 leap years in a century. Well, now here's the government of this week's question of the week. So, so crazy. It's so interesting. It's so craziness. This is the densest element that there is. Well, if you know the answer, just think you know the answer. Email us at gox.hotmail.com. You're not going to win anything, but ah, you just might be the governor. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grox. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grox, email us at grox at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grox, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon, and stay tuned for more music with your host, Katie.